I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you don't know me, I'm a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant, and on this podcast, we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for physicians and patients to share experiences is how to transform medicine. I work with healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time we begin these conversations, and I even hint at the discussion about trauma, I met with one of two things either intense, compassionate curiosity, or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so that you feel more competent as a provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and lead with tangible tools that you can use with your patients today. So today I am here talking with two special guests, um, a dynamic duo that often work together and complement each other, uh, Dr. Terry Pedersen and Dr. Keith Chang. Dr. Pedersen practiced as a pediatrician for over 26 years and is now a trainer and consultant for groups such as the Oregon Echo Network, the Oregon Psychiatric Access Line, and Trauma-Informed Oregon. And Dr. Chang is the medical director of the Oregon Psychiatric Access Line and faculty at the OHSU Psychiatry Program in the School of Medicine. He is also the senior medical consultant for Trillium Family Services, Oregon's largest provider of child and adolescent inpatient treatment. He has extensive experience working in clinical leadership for Oregon's most mentally ill youth. Welcome, Keith and Terry. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. Um, Add to your introductions. That was the formal introduction, but um, tell people who are listening maybe just a little bit more about yourselves. I'll let Terry go first. Thanks, Keith. Um, well, I've lived in Oregon. I came out to Oregon to do my residency in pediatrics at um, Oregon Health Sciences University and never left because of backgrounds behind me uh, and because of the people I get to work with. And it's been an absolute delight to work with both Amy and Keith um, over the past eight, 10 years. Um, and I would say that the in terms of relevance for this, my, um, my experience as a pediatrician was that I did an awful lot of mental health care and so kind of came through this through through the through the back door um and which we're going to talk about today awesome keith well let's see i came to oregon in 1990 after i uh, finished my child psychiatry training and uh so i've been here over 30 years in oregon and in that time uh, i've worked as a child psychiatrist at every level of care from traditional outpatient to uh, inpatient services, including the state hospital programs, acute hospital programs, residential and subacute programs. And during this period of time, uh, I would say that I became more and more impressed with how uh, psychological and emotional trauma uh, really colors the outcomes of the patients we we take care of. And the more I understood this, the more I became uh, sensitive that the treaters of individuals with trauma have just as much of a challenge on uh, managing, uh, well, I guess we would call it vicarious trauma, right? All these stories of brokenness and that uh, the system also intrudes on uh, health providers on how to take care of these individuals too, by um, I guess inflicting its own type of uh, administrative trauma, if you will. Uh, you know, uh, human beings are great on making it really difficult to take care of people, <laughs> people's health, and and from my perspective, uh, even even more challenging to take care of youth with trauma and the families supporting the families. So that's kind of how I got interested in this. Wow. I, I appreciate the, the phrase, these stories of brokenness. Um, let me just dive in and ask you both um, how both of you are interested in trauma, talk about trauma, know its importance. How would you in your own words talk about or define trauma? I would say trauma is anything that has um, physical or emotional um, damage or hurt, harm um, that stays with people. Um, it, it's the staying with people that that causes that. That's the true um, true source of the trauma. 
I guess I back up a little to like the 50,000 foot level. It's trauma is a stress. It doesn't necessarily need to harm uh, individuals or communities. It can, it, it often does, you know, a little trauma, you know, some people would say is, is important for, for human beings to grow and develop, you know, uh, better coping mechanisms without, without being broken. But having said that, you know, basically emotional or psychological stresses, um, which may or may not result in in damage, if you will, to uh, growth and development of individuals. So I want to I want to key in on something you just said that I think is really important. That we might all experience stress. It doesn't have to be trauma, but it can. What what differentiates stressors that become trauma then? From my, from my point of view, it really is, again, how it affects the individual. And the, the same experiences, same ex, what seem to be the same external experiences, for some people, can again, it's the sticking with you. Um, it, it stays with them. And for other kids, as well as adults, you all, yes, it happened, and yet. Um, and, you know, Professionally, we talk about if you can make a narrative about things, if you can make sense out of it in your own mind and storytelling, um, that 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 either if it's already there to begin with or you can create that, that that's important for for healing, for Mm -hmm. either not becoming truly traumatic or um, or healing. Mm -hmm. I guess I I use the term clinically significant trauma and, you know, without being overly academic about this, it's like any, any stressors that uh, result in um, deviation from someone's developmental trajectory in a positive or or helpful way. Right. So if some, you know, youth or family, they're traumatized so uh, severely or they experience so much stress that it's so overwhelming that it derails, uh, you know, normal development, then I would say that's clinically significant trauma. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate what you're saying too, Terry, that often creating these narratives are how we make sense of what's happened to us. Um, so in this podcast, we talk about how trauma might present in the field of medicine, um, sometimes overtly, sometimes subtly. But for people who work with kids or are interested in in working with children and families, can can both of you talk a little bit or maybe even have a story that you remember about a patient about how does trauma present in children? Well, I'll answer the question a little bit differently if if I can. And in that it 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 because it can, can show up in so many ways. It shows up in so many ways. And in again, in my 26 years of clinical practice, um I, you know, we had we had so many prevention programs. We had smoking prevention programs, and we had pregnancy prevention programs, and we had obesity prevention programs. And and they were all these one-off um inter- supposed interventions that to be quite honest were not very effective and so when when i first heard about the ace study the adverse childhood experiences study for me suddenly this all made sense that that underneath this um the early smoking the early drinking the 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 teen pregnancies was this uh, from so many people this underlying uh true trauma that had happened to them. And that was how it was expressing itself. So for me, um, that, that I saw it on a daily basis. I saw it on a daily basis. And I, if I really wanted to do prevention, I knew I need to get to the the foundation of it. Um, Keith and I have talked before, you know, in primary care, um, certainly when I was practicing, there weren't, we weren't allowed to bill for mental health diagnoses. So I would have kids come in with anxiety, or a lot of anxiety, but I coded a lot of headaches and abdominal pain because uh, that's what I could be reimbursed for. Yes, this is health insurance fraud here. Um, And, 
but if we really looked at all those cases of abdominal pain, all those headaches, uh, yeah, sometimes it was allergies, sometimes it was food ins- sensitivity, but there was a lot of anxiety, there was a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keith, what would you add to that? What trauma looks like in kids? Well, again, speaking as a child psychiatrist, it could be a, your stereotypic you know, picture of trauma. I, I worked for 10 years in the intercultural psychiatric program at OHSU, and we saw youth from all over the world who uh, uh, immigrated. Uh, they were trauma victims in their country. And so uh, you know, I can remember uh, distinctly a picture that an Iraqi child drew, drew for me the, of a person with a gun shooting another person. Uh, and these were the experiences that this child had and why the family left, because there was just open warfare in their neighborhood with people getting shot and killed and their family being threatened. So they ended up moving to the United States. Another way of looking at trauma, though, uh, from a from a clinical provider perspective, from a health provider's perspective, is when Terry and I did a uh, a trauma informed care echo training clinic, and we had over a hundred people from social workers to physicians come and talk about their cases with trauma. What was really impressive to me uh, that I think that the caregivers were more traumatized by the way the system doesn't work than the vicarious trauma of the bad things that happened to their their, uh, patients. And what was really frustrating for them is that as they tried to get help for their their, uh, patients, that there are all of these doors they tried to get through and they couldn't. And that was was probably one of the major frustrations at this at this echo clinic we had about having to deal with trauma. So it was, I mean, it was interesting. It's, you know, I, I guess I thought in the beginning, it would be more about vicarious trauma, people traumatized by the stories they heard, you know, the difficulties their patients had uh, or patients being quotes resistant to treatment or not engaged in treatment, but, but really what was outstanding was the way healthcare is provided. You know, it's just not, mental health care, health care in general is provided. There are so many things that uh, people try to do to help their patients who've been traumatized by, you know, medical uh, treatments or, or uh, interventions. And uh, it was just so frustrating that they couldn't, uh, couldn't do anything. I mean, examples they gave was, you know, what, what it was like to take care of people uh, at these, uh, these facilities for older adults, right? During, during COVID, I mean, it was just like, it was horrible. All these people had to be, you know, isolated in their rooms. Uh, people died without any human touch because no one else could go in there. Family members weren't allowed to go in there. I mean, horribly traumatizing for everybody. But, you know, again, the caretakers were also horribly traumatized. Um, you know, other things, uh, people talk about, uh, you know, wanting to get... Uh, their patients the best care and that they've had trauma before in medical procedures and trying to explain that to the treating staff. And, you know, rather than them doing anything, it was just like patting on the head. They're there now, you know, just tell that story. It'll all be okay, you know, but I mean, patients though, they they had all sorts of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And um, it was, I mean, for some, well, I mean, the statistics are pretty stark. I mean, if you're in the ICU, you have 25 to 33% chance of experience post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is just ICU patients, you know, uh, 25% of uh, nurses who work in the ICU will get PTSD. Uh, if you have a family member in the ICU, you're going to be 25 to 40% chance of developing PTSD as a family member. So, I mean, all of this stuff is, is really challenging for healthcare providers. So, so yeah. you're both talking about multiple levels of trauma, right? The trauma that your patient may have experienced, trauma that a, the physician may experience or the nurse or the healthcare provider from being exposed to it, and systemic trauma from not being able to access care for the people that you're helping or trying to help. Mm-hmm. 
And you, what were we going to say, Terry? I was going to uh, tag along to what Keith was saying. We also know there are interventions we can do for patients, for staff, and for family members to really prevent, certainly mitigate the the effects of their experiences, and hopefully prevent PTSD in those in in, in everybody involved. Um, and there's some beginning literature on that, specifically about ICU. So let me go back for a minute. If if I'm a family practice doc or a pediatrician who might not, might not know a lot about how trauma presents or even a psychiatrist, you mentioned a couple of things like headaches or stomach aches, or maybe there's artwork that parents bring to you, but what are some other um, overt or maybe more subtle ways that you might see trauma present in primary care? I think certainly just behavioral, uh, behavioral aspects. Um, uh, this kid has ADHD. This kid has oppositional defiant disorder. This kid has, this kid is broken. You need, you know, we need help. We need medication to help fix this kid. I'd say the behavioral aspects um, are, are significant sleep problems. Uh, it basically, again, trauma is a huge, another of those great masqueraders in, pre, in, in medicine. It can show up any way it wants to. Um, and if we don't think about it, we're going to miss it as a diagnosis. Mm. So Keith, how do you not miss it if it's a great masquerader? And I know we talk about a lot about this in the child psychiatry echo, but how do you really try to hone in so that you don't miss it? You know, the most important thing is to have a high index of suspicion that trauma is going on. I, when I was a, a resident, psychiatry resident, I did to review the literature on the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder incidents in the general population. And uh, I'm not 100% certain of the statistic, but I, I think one of the papers I read was something like one in 10,000. Now, mind you, this is back in the 1980s, okay, because I'm an old person, but uh, now, you know, the, the incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder or the incidence of youth who experience trauma uh, is thought to be much higher than what we previously thought. And, you know, if, if, you're a, if you're a teenage high school student, that you have over 50% chance of having some horrible traumatic event that, that you've experienced. And of those 50% who, you know, have experienced those types of trauma, you know, you have anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to, to 40% chance of also developing post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, high index of suspicion because uh, lots of times that the, the a youth's response to trauma is uh, what we would call internalizing. It doesn't bother anybody. It, it just kind of be quiet. But, you know, a youth who stops socializing, a youth who stops uh, going to school, which is pretty easy to do during the pandemic, a youth who quits, uh, you know, the the usual activities that they've been involved with, whether it's school choir, local baseball team, you know, whatever, because they've been traumatized, they kind of go back in their little shell and and, and do nothing. And so, um, you know, for, for pediatricians or primary care clinicians, all of those kind of more, I guess, subtle uh, changes in behavior could be the first time of a youth experiencing trauma. So I, two takeaways right away, right, is that just know that trauma is a great masquerader. And Keith, you said have a high index of suspicion, right, that, that it's more common than we realize. Um, do either of you have uh, practical ways that you open up that conversation with a family or with a child? What's the pediatrician say <laughs> at an appointment? Well, it, it depends. It certainly depends on the age of the child, and it depends on who's in the room uh, and what my concerns are. You know, it, it's it's easier once once kids can talk about. I usually I try and normalize things, or sometimes I just say, you know, it, you know, say anxiety. I say, you know, you seem more worried than you know. A lot of kids worry, but you seem a little bit extra worried. I'm wondering if there might be something, some reason for that extra worry, or um, you tell me more about when your tummy aches happen. Uh, so again, you know, it's a normal part of just the history. Tell me when your tummy aches happen. When did your tummy aches first start happening? I'm wondering, so it's the curiosity and, and seeing where the, the, the questions take you. I would say that that's really I, I like to ask questions like, 
since I last saw you, or if it's the first time, you know, what's the best thing that's happened to you in the last year? What's the worst thing that's happened to you? And then that kind of gives a open-ended, uh, you know, invitation for the youth to share with you. I mean, if they don't trust you, you're not going to hear anything, but uh, if it's been bothering them and they decide, ah, oh, this person seems okay, you you might get an earful that you would have never thought was happening for, for a child. Um, so that that's one of the ways for younger children. I like having them draw pictures about, you know, the same thing, you know, draw a picture of the best thing that's happened for you, the worst thing. And uh, again, you could be surprised by some of the things that kids will draw. And I think certainly one advantage of primary care uh, over, uh, you know, specialty mental health. I mean, mo- so many of my patients, I'd known them since, you know, the day they were born. And so there was already a level of trust there. Um, and so we, you know, it, so the conversation wasn't necessarily a new conversation that we were that we were having. So that that helped a lot. So I, I love this because basically what both of you are saying, first of all, it doesn't it's not a highly confrontational conversation, right? It's just tell me a little bit more or, you know, it seems like you're really anxious. What might be making you anxious or tell me about things that have happened in your life? And 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 to your point, Terry, I, I think that's why I'm so passionate about spreading the word around trauma-informed care is that really pediatricians and and primary care providers are in the best position because you've known these families sometimes multiple generations, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What what would you say to a provider who says, oh gosh, you want me to talk about trauma? Um, That seems terrifying. (laughs) I'm going to like have all 45 minute appointments now. I'm never going to get out of my office. Um, can I you speak to that here? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, as you know, Amy, what, what we decided to do in our clinic, I, I think if you're working with kids, this can be a really tricky area of, of asking directly about, about trauma because we are, we're obligate reporters. Okay. And, and in my clinic, we really felt like we did not have, we didn't have the mental health support. We didn't have the DHS support. Um, we didn't have all the things that we felt would be important to have in place in order to to really dive into deeply uh, about asking every single kid that came in the door. But we knew we could ask the parents and we knew about intergenerational transmission of trauma. And so we thought that if we could, if we could um, ask parents about their own trauma experiences, take them out of the closet in, in a non-judgmental way, take those histories out of the closet. And uh, which, you know, it's, it's the closeting that is also, there's so much shame about trauma uh, because we blame the victim. We still blame the victim these days. Um, but if we could take their closet histories out of the closet and agree to support them when they felt most challenged, um, we could create a healthier cycle of parenting. Um, and, and it was, you know, and we would tell them, you know, we would say, you know, if you didn't have, you know, most of us learn our parenting skills from our own parents. And if you didn't have good role models, that can be especially hard. We're all, we all feel challenged as parents. And again, if you didn't have those role models, it might be more difficult for you. We're here to, we're here to support you to be the parent you really want to be. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there were, and and with that, um, that just, that just let down people's, it just opened things up. It opened up so much. And instead of appointments taking 45 minutes, sometimes they would take it would take much less time because the trauma was always there. But if we didn't address it, it came up in all these other ways. And if we were able to address it directly for the parents and, and what their challenges were as parents, then that just that simplified things tremendously, tremendously. But it really was the non-judgmental I'm on your side. What can, how can I be here to support you be the parent you want to be? Nobody, I I never in 26 years met a parent who purposefully wanted to harm their child physically, emotionally, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, I I 100% agree in my experience. I've, I've yet to meet a parent who doesn't want to be a great parent. 
um, and is otherwise lacking tools or resources or support. Um, and, and that approach that you're talking about really respects the fact that the parents want to be good parents and that you're a partner with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Keith, would you add anything to that? Well, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about um, maybe healthcare providers' reticence to talk to trauma because they think it'll be more traumatizing for, mm-hmm. for a, a patient. And uh, it was interesting. We, When I worked on an inpatient unit, we decided that uh, it would be helpful to, to inquire more about trauma. And, and uh, we developed a kind of a modified uh, ACE score interview to be, mm-hmm. to be uh, used with every single youth who were admitted. And uh, there was a, there was actually a large contingent of the staff. And this is at a, this is at an inpatient psychiatric unit, right? Who uh, really didn't want to ask kids trauma questions because they were afraid that it was going to make them more agitated, it was going to hurt them. And uh, so what we did was we did 100 cases, the first 100 cases of, uh, you know, this trauma interview. And then we we circled back and asked them, you know, what would their experience was like? You know, how was this really difficult? Did, did it make you more, quote, symptomatic? And mind you, we're talking about some of the most traumatized kids, right? Because they end up in, the, in a psychiatric hospital. In fact, um, of, I don't know, the average A score was like six. And, um, I, you know, it was amazing too, that, uh, the, the most common, the most common A score was a parent who either had their own mental health issues or substance use disorder. That those were the most, those are the two most common, uh, ACE, uh, traumas that, that, uh, that we kind of uncovered and that, uh, really enforces this idea about, you know, needing to, to support the parents because they don't want to do poorly, but I mean, they have their own challenges in this. At any rate, you know, after doing a hundred of these uh, follow-ups to, to asking trauma questions, you know, I think it was almost like 97% said it, it really didn't cause any problems for, for them. So, you know, maybe two or three out of a hundred felt that this was intrusive or difficult for them to ask uh, to be asked this this kind of modified uh, ACE uh, interview, mm-hmm. um, though there were some some other interesting uh, stories to this. Was that one of the the youth said like, if you guys hadn't asked me those these questions, I wouldn't have told anybody about this traumatic event. And right. uh, so anyway, I I think it's important to ask. Yes, there's a risk that for a very small minority, it, it might. Uh, be traumatic. But I mean, part of that is that you would just say, hey, look, you don't have to answer any of these questions. You find it difficult, right? Uh, we can save this for later. We'll talk later. But, you know, no pressure on ask, you know, answering these quotes, uh, nosy questions about bad stuff that's happened to you that it's not, it's not necessary. If it, if it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. So, so what I'm hearing is that most of the time the, the patients felt less alone. They talked about things they may not have otherwise talked about. And for the most part, the physicians weren't traumatized. Um, Were there positive things that happened for the physicians by asking? I can say in, in, you know, again, in my practice, we, you know, we, we started to do, this was going to be a pilot of one, and then it ended up being two. And then people overheard us talking about it and said, what are you going to do? And we told them, and all of a sudden we had, uh, you know, eight of, uh, I think at that point there were 24 physicians in our practice. So eight of us just again, jumped into the deep end said, we're going to try this. Um, And what, what my partners kept coming back to me and saying, oh my God, I can't believe this. You know, one of my, one of them said, you know, this mom, this was her, this was her third child with us. And if we hadn't been asking these questions directly, I would have never known the stress she was under um, and, and what she was having to cope with to be the parent she was because she was a really good mom, but she was paying a huge price for it. I heard those stories over and over again. It deepened the relationships (laughs) that, 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 
our, our pediatricians had with their patients. And to a one, because again, this was a pilot. So after a period of time, we said, you know, well, was this enough? Should we go back? You know, did, did we figure out what we wanted to figure out? Which really was, what is the incidence of trauma in the parents of our practice? And to a one, people said, I would never go back again. I would mm. never go back again. Um, mm. This has changed everything. And I, again, my, my, my relationships, I thought my relationships were strong before. They're even stronger. They're more meaningful. Uh, I feel like I really have something more to add to their lives. Wow. Wow. I, I will reiterate, and some people that are listening who listened to the origin story of the podcast in episodes one and two will hear the reason that I named this podcast, the most important medicine was for that exact reason, Terry, because I had a physician say to me after beginning to feel more comfortable around talking about trauma, ways to build resilience, social determination. He said, this is the most important medicine. This is everything we should be doing. And I, I, I love that you're saying that many of the providers said it actually deepened the relationship that they had with the families they were working with. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have a couple of follow-ups on this. Um, one is what our experience at uh, doing the Opal K phone consultations with primary care has been that trauma has not necessarily been on the forefront of their minds. And so frequently happens as you've mentioned before, it's the great masquerader. And so these youth have been diagnosed with, you know, ADHD, for example, and really the issue that's going on with these youth is post-traumatic stress disorder. And so, yeah, it's, if we unpack this case, there's a good reason why your, your uh, patient with ADHD is not responding to stimulant medication. There's all this other stuff going on. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that um, our experience is that the more we are able to offer this perspective for clinicians, the better they are at identifying trauma in their patients and to think about it. So that high index of suspicion, again, is, I think, really important. And this is just not with primary care. It's it's with psychiatric clinicians. Again, it's the same problem is that someone's admitted for a suicide attempt and one may make the assumption it's due to severe depression. But again, if you unpack the case, it, it, it has more to do with trauma than it does, quotes, a, a a clinical uh, depression. And so this notion about making it a standard part of your review of systems, I think is, is really important. I mean, before, you know, we talked about, you need to always ask about drug and alcohol use, right? Uh, or even are there guns in the house? But now, I mean, I think this is probably even more important, or at least uh, a bigger net is to ask about uh, or, or or explore the, the role of trauma that maybe playing a role in our, our patients' physical and mental health. Yes. Yes. Put that on a bumper sticker, right? We sh this should be standard questions that, that we should be asking. I 100% agree. Um, do, do either of you have um, a, a personal story about why you became interested in trauma-informed care or why this has been especially important to you? Well, I would say, again, as a primary care clinician, I was doing, um, particularly as my patients started to, to hit their teen years, I was doing more and more mental health care and, and, and behavioral health support without significant training for it. And, and so at a, at a certain point, and, and, and so you could say it was, it was imposter syndrome or whatever. I just felt I was not doing my patients a, a service by, by, you know, talking to them about what their challenges were. And you said, you know, you asked the question and yes, yes, yes. You hear, you, you hear a whole lot. And I, and so I would talk to my teens in particular about, you know, well, you know, and, and again, I'm from the South. So darling, you know, I, what you're telling me is really important things and it's really impacting you. I think you'd really benefit from seeing a therapist and, and someone who's really trained to do this. And, and there was, I oftentimes would reach, you know, I'd get pushback and, and have resistance. Um, and they said, well, I want to come back and see you. So, mm -hmm. so at, at a certain point, I just thought, okay, well, 
I'm going to get more training. So I did a kind of self-directed sabbatical uh, and spent time with some, some real mental health providers and, and what I realized with that, to a, to a large extent, I certainly learned a lot, um, was that my patients had taught me so much um, without, my, without my knowing it, just, you know, again, the listening part. And it was there that it was during that sabbatical that I learned about the ACE study. And, and for me, again, it was such a relief. It was like, oh, if this is if this is really underneath all this, we can solve this. We can solve this, um, and uh, which again gets me back to one of my my big things is you know we have these huge cardiac units and we have all kinds of medicines for treating diabetes and hypertension and all this kind of stuff. And if we would just you know we why are we treating the tertiary secondary and tertiary symptoms? When we have an underlying diagnosis, we always want to treat the underlying diagnosis. And if we can, to prevent the underlying diagnosis. So, so that, that was, that was, that was what got me into really being willing to address this directly. And certainly initially it was like, oh, this is so huge. I'm, I'm just a general pediatrician in primary care. There are so many people who think about systems, and and I'm not a systems thinker, and da 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 da. And so I waited a couple of years, and nothing was happening. And finally, it started to feel unethical to be mm. not doing anything. So that's when decided to just again dive into the deep end, see what happened. So wow. that's how I got into it. Uh, I mean, I. I really appreciate you saying at some point it felt unethical to not do more. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing. What about you, Keith, a personal story you were, you, you talked a little bit about working with the immigrant population, um, other things that brought you into this field. Well, my interest uh, started, I really think working, uh, doing inpatient work. And I had the same of experience that, this is kind of unethical not to do anything about this. And the experience I was having, again, was less about the individual patients and more about our staff. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in psychiatric inpatient treatment, we take care of the most traumatized youth right in the state. And that trauma just is uh, so expressed intensely, sometimes in physical aggression, that you know, the, the staff at the residential and hospital programs I worked at were extremely traumatized, both physically and, and uh, emotionally, psychologically, that it it was developing into this kind of us against them kind of uh, dynamic that made me extremely uncomfortable. Because, you know, if you don't take care of the caregivers, they're not going to to provide very good care. So that's the that's the quadruple aim, right? Bodensheimer's quadruple aim. Yeah, you add the care for the caretakers, and, and so my my experience kind of paralleled um, Sandra Bloom's experience as the the developer of this, the sanctuary model, right? That a lot of this came with her experience as a psychiatrist working with uh, teams in a inpatient service, where uh, the 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 treaters became very intensely. Um, disturbed and emotionally distraught about the the kids they were taking uh, care of. And then uh, instead of resulting in in more uh, empathy for the youth, it it became anger. You know, why are you treating me the way that these people who mistreated you were, you know, I'm supposed to be helping you and yet you're treating me this way. And so, you know, the whole notion about what happened to these youth rather than what's wrong with those youth, you know, why are you being so evil by treating me this way. And so that's how my interests developed. And uh, we actually, at one of my programs, uh, got uh, trained in the sanctuary model for our institution, which I can't tell you how much it improved the way uh, we interacted with youth and that the outcomes were were much better because of uh, trauma-informed care um, training for, for our our uh, care providers. And again, I, 
I think this goes back to this notion about, you know, the more you know about it, the better you're going to do with, with the people you work with. Mm-hmm. I will I will link up to the sanctuary model in the show notes so that people can see Sandra Bloom's work. I think it's really important. Um, last question before we go into some uh, rapid fire questions here at the end that I have for both of you. Um, with all best intentions, um, you're still in a space where you're talking and exposed to a lot of trauma. Um, how do you find balance and meaning and take care of yourselves? I would say for me, um, it's, it's my relationships outside of work. That's huge for me. It's my activities outside of work. Um, it's having people who understand what I'm trying to do. And even some who don't really understand what I'm trying to do, um, but who can listen to me and see me and hear me. Um, I, you know, I think those are the things that are really helpful. You know, for me, I I need a lot of downtime and downtime really makes a difference for me. Great. So Amy, I'm glad you asked this question because uh, oftentimes people they get distraught with us just wanting to talk about trauma. And so I guess the way I, I respond to your question is that we're really talking about what's our resilience plan, right? So not only for us, but our patients, how how can we help them be more resilient? And so, um, you know, I, I developed a resilience uh, questionnaire that we use clinically with patients. So some of these things apply to me uh, just as much as any patients. And one is, Am I physically healthy? Am I physically active? And so uh, making sure that I get enough exercise and make sure I get enough physical activity uh, to recharge my batteries. Nothing nothing works for me better than playing golf at sunrise with nobody else out there by myself in nature, you know, also listening to the birds, enjoying the, the, the you know, rising sun and those kinds of things. Um, I try to have better sleep hygiene. I'm I have to admit, I'm not great at that, but if I sleep better, I feel better, um, you know, better nutrition. If I take care of what I eat, I'm going to be better than if I'm uh, eating too many potato chips. Um, And then some of the other resilience factors for ourselves and our patients about, you know, do I pay attention to family cohesion, right? Do, as a physician, am I spending all of my time, you know, uh, and energy about work and, and have no energy left for the family? Um, am I so, am I so isolative because, you know, I go to work before the sun rises and get back to work after the sun sets that I have no social relationships. You know, I don't interact with my peers in any other way than professionally, you know, taking care of patients. And, you know, uh, one of the problems with burnout is you, you lose your sense of purpose, right? It's like, what am I doing here? It's just like this, this circle, you know, I, I, I you know, particularly for ED physicians, you know, like I just keep seeing the same thing, the same story over and over. And so being able to step back, you know, and look at, you know, what your purpose is with your career, where you're going, what you're trying to accomplish, I think is important. Um, and then, you know, we talk about that successful, uh, work, uh, life balance and, and just, you know, taking, you know, stock at times to make sure that, uh, we're not too imbalanced in our approach though. Um, coming from a two physician family, it's like, um, maybe my, my son summed it up best. It's like, you don't care about your kids. You only care about your patients. So just, because it's true, like a missed birthday. Well, you know, mom had to go in and do surgery because, you know, it was an emergency. He had to go in and do surgery. Dad had to be on call this weekend, you know, because someone got sick. So I'm sorry, it's your birthday this weekend, but I had to go cover for the inpatient unit. So anyway, to be mindful of these kinds of things as busy clinicians, I think is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I was told um, that that those grand round rapid fire questions can be traumatizing, but I promise you, these are, these are much less traumatizing. So um, I just have a few uh, quick questions because I really think that the human beingness that we're all sharing is, is really important in terms of trauma informed work. So um, Terry, what's one thing people get wrong about physicians? Oh, that we don't care. Hmm. 
Again, I don't know a single person who went into medicine who didn't have caring about other people be a foundational part of things. Does it sometimes get beaten out of people? Do people put up walls to be, you know, to protect themselves? Are we taught to have these really sharp boundaries um, uh, between us versus them? Yes, but but I think it's the you know we don't care. What do you think, Keith? What's one thing people get wrong? Uh, that we know everything. And I'm telling you that the people who really get it wrong are the physicians themselves who kind of delude themselves that they they know everything. I mean, for me, there's nothing, there's no more relief for me to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. Let me go look it up. Because otherwise, it, it's just too much stress to, to feel like you you know everything, whether we, you know, admit that to our patients or our colleagues doing a consult. I, I just think that that's a, a huge misconception. And, you know, of uh, patients, you know, have a lot of trust in, in physicians and uh, we want to play that role for them, but sometimes it's a whole lot better to say, I'm not sure exactly what's going on. Let's, let's take stock or let me refer you to somebody or let's get some more information or tests, you know, to shed some light on what's going on. I love that one, Keith. I, I love getting to the point in my career where I was confident enough in my knowledge base, to, and I relished. I loved being able to say, "I don't know, beats me," um, but but let you know, let's figure it out. So, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Um, Keith, if you could go back to young Dr. Chang, um, what would you tell him? Uh, young Dr. Chang and even old Dr. Chang has the biggest problem with work-life balance. As my son echoes that I probably worked too much, didn't spend enough time at home or, or even worse, didn't spend enough time taking care of my body. You know, I, I'm, I mean, look young on the outside, but my body is terrible on the inside. So, um, sharing that. Yeah. What about for you, Terry? What would I tell my younger self? Um, I would, I would tell myself it's okay to be brave about what you really believe is right. Um, you know, Keith talked about the system being, you know, traumatizing, and the, the system can be really rigid in how how you know how we're, how our relationships are going to be, how we're supposed to do things. And it took me a long time to figure out that the system was sometimes the biggest problem. So yeah, don't, 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 yeah. Don't believe the system. I love that. Be brave enough. Yeah. 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 Um, Terry, often in healthcare, I think patients get intimidated by professionals. Will you share just one quirky thing that makes you a messy human? Say that again. What? Which one? One. One thing that makes you a messy human. Me- a messy human in general. You want it? You want me to show you? I can turn my camera, the 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 screen off. You can see my dining room table that this is on. Um, as a messy human, uh, I I think that um, well, one one of my true confessions that Keith knows, I actually have an addiction to chocolate. Oh. <laughs> so as addictions go. You know, there are far worse addictions, um, but every now and then I have to address that one. So I can be physically messy and my friends and family, anyone who knows me knows that sometimes I eat a bit more chocolate than might be healthy. (laughs) If that's possible. It's all dark chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) That makes it okay. Yes, makes it okay. Uh, What about you, Keith? What's, What's one thing that just makes you perfectly imperfect? Well, it's kind of a funny story. One of my patients drew a picture of me and all, all these spots on my face. And I said, what are those? They well, uh, they look like ants. And, and it was like, no, you didn't shave this morning. So again, it's this kind of like self-care thing. It's like, I have to have my patients remind me I'm not taking care of myself because they have to draw a picture of it for me. So <laughs> Okay, last question, and then I'll 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 wrap up things. Um, and we might already know the answer for Terry. Um, it's eleven o'clock at night, and you have a food craving. What do you reach for, Terry? 
Well, I would not do chocolate at 11 o'clock at night because I also need to sleep and I'm real sensitive to that. Um, uh, you know, I'd say that chocolate is really the one true craving I have. But um, so, and this is, this is, if it's 11 o'clock at night and it's time for bed, I make a glass of warm milk. Oh, okay, nice. Is it a craving? No, but it's it it works. And then I put a little bit of uh, I do put a little bit of uh, cocoa bitters into my warm milk. Nice. Eleven o'clock at night. Nice. Uh, what about for you, Keith? What's your eleven o'clock at night craving? Well, the old Keith would eat potato chips. The new Keith would uh, eat some fruit. <laughs> okay. So. So the craving for potato chips is still there. And the, uh, what you let yourself allow yourself to have is fruit. Okay. Yeah. Well, with a cholesterol over 200, you know, it's, it is a problem. Potato chips. The battle of wills. Um, uh, Keith and Terry, if they want to find out more about your work or, or work with Opal K, um, we'll link up to that in the show notes. Um, I think it's a, an incredible offering. And I know that so many clinicians get, and wonderful insights um, from, from your work. Um, I have so much respect for both of you. Thank you so much for joining me and for um, being willing to be educators for all when it comes to talking about trauma-informed work. I just, I'm so grateful that I know both of you and that you're in my lives. So, so thank you very much. Thank you, Amy. It has been an absolute treat to work with you on a number of projects over the years. Um, so I'm I'm thrilled that you're doing this one. Thank and you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, Amy, welcome. You're welcome for that uh, praise. But I mean, I, I think I've gotten a lot more uh, out of you from your work with our Echo Clinic. So it's, it, you've just been a, a godsend for us and, and uh, for our Echo programs. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you both. And if you if you all can't find Keith and Terry, we know where to find them. Early morning out on the golf course and hiking. Uh, or scrounging for chocolate. So thank you both. You're welcome <laughs> so much. Bye, everyone. Welcome. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.